From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. When Robert Kirkman was working on two different versions of the Walking Dead saga at the same time, he sometimes had to argue with himself. I'm writing the comics, and I'm working on the show, and then I start having ideas where it's like, oh, maybe this guy has a pet tiger. And in the back of my mind, I go, well, that's going to be hard to do in the show. And then I go, you're a sellout, Kirkman. You have to do the tiger now. Robert Kirkman also tells us about restarting production from scratch on season two of his Amazon animated series, Invincible, after a long pandemic-related delay. And he talks about his realization that he needed to make important changes to the series, which is based on his superhero comic of the same name. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my ally and banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So uh, let me start with the usual strike update. They are still talking as we are talking right now. So we are hopeful that they will come to a conclusion. There was obviously a major disruption and now they're back at the table. Turning to much more difficult global news, the Hamas-Israel conflict is impacting Hollywood. As we have seen, there has been a major flap at CAA over one agent's posts on social media. Maha Dakil referred to Israel's response to the Hamas attack as genocide. That offended a lot of Jewish partners at CAA, and some of their clients as well. As we reported, Aaron Sorkin has dropped CAA and gone back to WME. He gave us a statement at The Hollywood Reporter. It read, Maha isn't an anti-Semite. She's just wrong. She's a great agent, and I'm very proud of the work we did together over the last six years. I'm excited to be returning to WME. And I'm pretty sure that Ari Emanuel is looking to lure some people away if they're unhappy. And uh, I think it's still an open question again as we're speaking whether more clients are going to depart over this. And that's the big question because, you know, CAA's response to this, which was essentially to demote Doc Hill from the internal agency board where she had a, a position and also take the title of co-head of the motion picture department away from her temporarily. That was perceived around town in very divided ways that I think reflects the varied opinions that people have towards this war and towards Hollywood's response. And some people thought it was not enough of a punishment, that this was so offensive and it was perceived by many to be anti-Semitic. She did apologize and she took the post down. And others said, you know what, people make mistakes. She did apologize. Guy Siri talked to me on Sunday night. He's Madonna's manager and is an outspoken Israeli. And he said that she's a good person and that, you know, this is all about a dialogue. This is not something that we should be firing people or demoting them for. Um, so I think this really does reflect the difference of opinions around town about this. And we're seeing it play out also in the Writers Guild controversy. Well, let me just go back to Guy Osiri for a second. He is a manager. He manages Madonna. Madonna is a Maha Dakil client. Therefore, he was, I think, attempting around town to douse some of the flames. Uh, in terms of the WGA, they didn't put out a statement, and that has been controversial. And the sticky thing here is that 
places have put out statements, you know, about Black Lives Matter and other issues. And Maha herself was a leading person in the ill-fated Time's Up organization that was founded in the conference rooms of CAA was where they first met. So the WGA has not been able to come up with a statement because this is such a third rail issue. But I think to many of the Jews in this business and around the world, it is inexplicable why you cannot condemn the kind of wholesale slaughter, torture, terrible conduct that Hamas carried out in Israel. And then, you know, there are people who are equally upset about what has happened over years and what Israel's doing right now in Gaza. So the town is divided and upset, as is the planet. And uh, I don't know where this resolves itself and where it goes in terms of the Hollywood of it all. Yeah, and the Writers Guild president, Meredith Steam, did follow up. She did a sort of statement about the non-statement to members and tried to kind of have it both ways, say, we understand this has caused pain, um, but also reflecting the fact that there is a division of opinion within the Guild and especially within the Guild's board. And I think what also bothers people about the Writers Guild's inaction is that Hollywood is a business that was founded by Jewish immigrants. I mean, the original studio heads were almost all Jewish. It has a long tradition of Jewish people, especially in the Writers Guild, having leadership positions. And that, I think, especially for some of the older guard that have been around and sort of have seen how the anti-Semitism has played out over the decades, that is what is so troubling by the Writers Guild's lack of a response here. And then on the other side, people have complicated feelings towards Israel and some of the things that it has done. So I don't think this is a an easy, like, you're with us or you're not with us type situation. Yeah, I mean, if you can separate out the Hamas attack, that should be simple. And then once you move into the next phase, you're dealing with complicated feelings about Bibi Netanyahu and what he's done. So it's, it's a longstanding mess. And I, again, hope that somehow peace will emerge from this terrible situation. Let me pivot to something less dire and horrible. As we noted before, these streaming services are raising their rates, you know, because these studios have been losing money with the exception of Netflix. And uh, it's, it's very expensive to maintain a streaming service. Even Apple has raised its prices now from $6.99 a month to $9.99. It's a pretty stiff hike percentage-wise. Uh, Netflix, once again, also did raise prices for a couple of tiers. These things are starting to affect consumers' choices. How do you justify this one, that one? Do you turn in and out? I feel like at some point they're going to have to go back to that cable model and make you sign a contract not to turn in and out if you want to be on their services. But so far, they haven't done that. Well, they've done a version of it. I remember when House of the Dragon premiered, HBO Max at the time gave you a big discount if you signed up for a year. And that was designed to capture people who come in and out for Game of Thrones content and cancel right when it's over. And they basically said, if you stay for the year, we'll give you a big discount. So there's some discounting going on, but none of the cable contracts like we used to have to deal with. I think this is just a sign of the times. I mean, inflation is everywhere. And these services are now in a make-or-break moment. They've got to be profitable. The market wants to see it. 
even a company like Apple is seeing what's going on and everybody else is raising their prices. So why shouldn't Apple put a higher premium on what they're producing? They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on some of these things. They're spending more than $200 million on a Martin Scorsese movie. I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a coincidence that they have all these big ticket movies coming out and they are getting theatrical releases, but then they're going to go to Apple TV Plus and the value proposition is higher. Apple does not have a library of content like a lot of the other streamers do. So it's not going to be the first stop people go to just see what's on. But they have a lot of stuff that they're marketing and they say, listen, our, our product is as good as some of the others, so why not? Yeah, I would have to say that for the latecomer to the party, Apple is somewhat punching above its weight. There's you know a lot of shows that are buzzy and they're doing pretty well, but they still raise their prices. Well, and the, their numbers of subscribers is far below some of the larger competitors. So I think their thinking is let's extract a little bit more money from the people who do appreciate our content. It's sort of the HBO model where we're not going to be for everybody, but the ones who we are for are willing to pay for it. Exactly. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Comic book writer Robert Kirkman has gotten quite familiar with shepherding TV adaptations of his work. The live-action version of The Walking Dead was a cash cow for AMC, which the studio milked for 11 seasons and several spin-offs. As he was working on that show, Kirkman was also releasing his comic book series Invincible, an updated take on classic superhero stories. The first season of the animated adaptation of Kirkman's comic premiered to critical acclaim in 2021. Kirkman talks to Eric Deggins about season two now dropping on Prime Video. The show follows teenager Mark Grayson, played by Stephen Young, who looks up to his superhero father, voiced by J.K. Simmons. As Mark develops powers of his own in season one, he learns, very dramatically, that his father isn't perfect. Season two picks up the story from there. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be my dad. What if that happens? What if I become him and I don't even know it? I need to do more. I can save lives. Put me back out there. I really loved The Walking Dead. And I really enjoyed reading the books as they were coming out and as the TV show was kind of evolving. And it felt like there was almost this conversation going on between what they were doing on the TV show, what they were pulling from the books, and then what you were doing with the new books, even though the storyline was, you know, far ahead from what they were doing on the TV show. And I was just wondering, was that actually happening? Was I hallucinating or <laughs> were you guys actually doing that? Yeah, I think it was kind of a weird, unique situation in that, yeah, I mean, I was writing the comics and working on the show, so we were adapting stuff that I had written while I was writing stuff, but I was participating in the writing of the adapting of the old stuff, and so it did all, like, inform everything, and so... Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to make sure that the existence of the show didn't dictate what happened in the comics, but the weirdest thing that occurred at that time is I'm writing the comics and I'm working on the show and then I start having ideas where it's like, oh, maybe this guy has a pet tiger. And in the back of my mind, I go, well, that's going to be hard to do in the show. And then I go, you're a sellout, Kirkwood. You have to do the tiger now. And so then the tiger ends up being in the comics and... If the show hadn't existed, I may have thought, maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense for this guy to have a pet tiger and not done it. So as a result, the comic got weirder and weirder and weirder as it went along. 
you know, for fear of me ever like selling out to try and make things producible. And that made the show get weirder and weirder as the seasons went on. So, so yeah, I definitely think there was a lot of weird stuff going on at that time. That's so awesome to hear. And and I want to ask how that uh, related to Invincible too. But the first question I'm going to ask you about Invincible, and this is your animated series for Prime Video about this young superhero who's sort of coming of age, he's getting his powers, and his father is a Superman-like superhero who's training him. This is the first season, and we're going to see the second season in November. Now, I'm going to ask you the question everybody's asking you, which is, first season aired in March of 2021. The second (laughs) season doesn't air until November. What happened? Dude, (laughs) you had us on the edge of our seats for a couple of years now. Yeah, no, it's an unfortunate situation, and I could not be more thankful of the fan base for, you know, really hanging in there, like re-watching the show, hounding me about season two, just really showing us that they care, and the interest has remained high. So I, I'm very grateful that, you know, this this drought of Invincible that we've almost gotten completely through, like we haven't completely lost the fan base, or at least it doesn't seem that way. So that's great. But uh Making animation is all about like building a factory, keeping that factory running. And with the pandemic and everything, things had to shut down after the first season. And so it became this time where we had to kind of start from square one and kind of rebuild the machine that had made season one in order to make season two. So in a lot of ways, it was like starting from the ground up and and season two almost felt like a season one because, you know, we lost a lot of like momentum. So that just, you know, killed us time-wise. So Invincible first debuted as a comic in 2003 And you did it for 15 years before we saw an animated version of it. Can you talk a little bit about how the project sort of evolved from being a comic to being an animated series? Yeah, I mean, you know, it it was something that myself and Corey Walker and Ryan Otley, uh, you know, plugged away at, did 144 issues of. and, And along the way, I think we optioned it to Paramount Pictures. And then I think I I wrote a script in like 2005 for that. And then that lapsed and, you know, didn't end up happening. And then there was some talk along the way, especially when Walking Dead was happening. You know, worked with some screenwriters behind the scenes and tried to get things off the ground, but it just never really took, uh, you know, Hollywood is a fickle beast. So, (laughs) you know, there's tons of things out there that that just don't happen. But I, I have to say with, you know, where we are now, I couldn't be more thankful that things aligned the way that they did. Uh, Prime Video was, you know, looking for more superhero stuff. And I had started dabbling more in animation. Uh, Skybound partnered with Spin Master to do this uh, animated series based on this other comic I did called Super Dinosaur. And so I'd been doing animated series and I really liked how comic books adapt into animation. I think that there's just a lot of freedom that you have in comics that you kind of lose when you move to live action. There's a lot of restrictions that you have to plan for. And uh, a lot of those restrictions just don't exist in the animation world. So, you know, I think it's a match made in heaven to be able to do an Invincible animated series. I think that if it was an Invincible live action series, there would definitely have to be like a different take on it and a different structure. And by doing it in an animated form, we're able to adapt to the comic fairly closely. Like we're able to translate that unyielding scale that we are able to accomplish in comics uh, in animation form. And so I think the delay in, in getting it out there has, has really been a blessing. I also talk a lot about 
the different way that I approach adapting Walking Dead versus adapting Invincible. And uh, I think that because the Invincible series was completed, there's an ending to the series that I like. You know, I like the way that the overall story structure mapped out when you look at the 144 issues of Invincible. And because of that, there's an ending in place that I feel confident working towards and and that I feel, you know, there has to be certain things that are maintained to make sure that we achieve that ending in animation the same way that we did in the comic book. Whereas Walking Dead, the ending was very amorphous and wasn't really like settled on while we were working on the TV show. So there wasn't really this need to make sure that, well, we have to make sure we don't change too much stuff along the way because we have to reach the exact same endpoint, which frankly, I think, you know, it did a disservice to the walking dead and you know it's kind of a bummer but it's made the adaptation of invincible a lot cleaner and uh, i think the fan bases are going to respond to it a little bit better coming up after the break robert kirkman addresses superhero fatigue and explains why it's not a new phenomenon apparently it dates back to the 1930s you're listening to the business from kcrw introducing the kcrw donation car designed to be recycled This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. Robert Kirkman is a comic book lover's superhero. He spent the last 20 years releasing successful comics, notably The Walking Dead. He worked on the live-action version of that series, but Kirkman still writes for print, saying it's like playing in a world that he absolutely loves. Kirkman spoke to Eric Deggins about the long-anticipated season two of his animated series Invincible, premiering November 3rd on Prime Video. Now, is it fair to say that part of what you do is take these classic genre forms that we're used to, whether it's the zombie story or it's the Superman story, and kind of modernize them and tell them in a way that feels more like a contemporary story? And I'm wondering if you think that's what you do, what do you see in the story that Invincible is telling that reflects that? Well, I think I think that's part of it. I think really what it is is I'm taking familiar stories that have been told in genres multiple times. So when it comes to zombie storytelling, if you've seen a hundred zombie movies, you kind of have a, a sense of what to expect when certain things happen in a zombie story. And so Walking Dead strives to do the opposite or do something different in those instances so that you're constantly, as a fan of the genre, being lulled into expecting a certain thing and then not getting that and getting something better or different or not as good or whatever, but it it, it keeps you on your toes. With Invincible, there's almost 100 years of superhero comic book storytelling and 30, 40 years in you know film and television. And I think we're in a similar situation where people expect superhero stories to go in a certain way. And so Invincible is by lovers of superhero fiction, but we're able to take that love of superhero fiction and manipulate it into something exciting and new and different. So as we're telling stories with Invincible, we know exactly what the fan base is expecting or thinks they're going to get because we're the fan base. And so 
like as a storyteller, it's kind of like sitting back and turning the dials and going, okay, you think the villain's going to do this because this happens and then he's going to lose, but I'm going to make him win. And what <laughs> happens when he wins? That leads to five other stories that you don't usually get in superhero fiction because the bad guys never win. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of when I first read Watchmen. And I realized that it, it seemed like part of what Alan Moore was kind of saying was that if you're the kind of guy who's going to put on a costume and beat up criminals to stop crime, there's got to be something psychotic about you. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, it's not, no. <laughs> not the kind of decision most people would make. <laughs> exactly. And so once you're starting there, you know, the story takes on, you know, this unexpected tinge, but it also just completely makes sense. So I don't want to completely give away what happens in the first season in case some of the people listening haven't seen it. But what happens with Invincible's father, in a way, it's kind of like that. It kind of makes sense, but boy, it's kind of brutal. And that's one thing that I think, you know, even casual observers might say about the show. It is visceral at times and gory at times for an animated show. But but what else is it about the content or the story that you're telling that you feel is subversive in a way that maybe people wouldn't notice at first? Well, I mean, I think the violence is one aspect of that. I think the the goal there is to just bring a level of realism to superheroes in an unexpected way. So, you know, if you had characters like Superman that were actually fighting in our world, they would be doing a tremendous amount of collateral damage or or they wouldn't be. And, you know, how is it possible that they wouldn't be? Well, they'd have to spend a tremendous amount of effort uh, you know, trying to avoid collateral damage and trying to manage the way they're fighting. And even that's interesting and not necessarily something that you see. So, I, you know, I think it's just trying to find like new angles into things. But, you know, there's startlingly, I mean, it's it's crazy that, you know, when you compare Walking Dead and Invincible, Invincible almost ends up being more violent uh, at oh, times, yeah. even though it's not a horror zombie thing. It's just because, you know, you have like imbalanced uh, power sets and incredibly strong people fighting against people who aren't that strong and they don't really know it sometimes. And, you know, so bad things happen. And, you know, just trying to bring a, a slight level of realism to a to a completely bizarre world. Now, I, I noticed looking at the credits, you've got Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg listed as executive producers. And, you know, these are guys who are also known for really sort of gonzo adaptations of graphic novels and comics like Preacher and The Boys. And I'm wondering, what do they bring to what you're doing? Are they particularly involved in Invincible? Well, I mean, they're definitely involved. Um, they bring a lot of cachet to the project. And they do have a real knack for, you know, finding comic properties and getting them made. Um, and it's been great being able to to bounce ideas off of them and, and, and see what their thoughts are on things. You know, we're working with them on the film side of things. And so it's, it's really just an overall partnership to, uh, uh, you know, make sure that they're involved in all things Invincible. So as the live action movie gets closer to coming out, hopefully once these strikes and everything are over, you know, you'll kind of see that, you know, they're working with me on the overall Invincible plan, if that makes sense. So this is an interesting time to be bringing a TV show that features a superhero because there's all this talk about superhero fatigue. And we've seen some highly anticipated projects, everything from the Flash movie to Secret Invasion on Disney Plus, um, not yeah. do as well as people expected, get worse reviews than people expected. 
And I wondered, what do you think about this whole notion that there is superhero fatigue out there? Do you do you buy into it? And how do you think Invincible sort of avoids that challenge? Well, I think I think this is a great time for Invincible to be out because Invincible debuted in 2003 as a comic book series. And at that point, superheroes had been running strong since the 30s. And you could say that there was a, a bit of superhero fatigue in the comics at that time. And so uh, Invincible is designed to be an off-the-beaten-path superhero story that kind of comments on other superhero stories. When you watch Invincible, if you have you know, an understanding of all the DC movies and all the Marvel movies. And if you've watched the, you know, the DC TV shows and the animated series from the nineties of, you know, Batman and Spider-Man and X-Men and all these shows, you know, you'll have like a, a vocabulary that will make the invincible show richer for you because you'll recognize the tropes and you'll see how we're changing them and you'll see how we are paying tribute to great superhero stuff that has come before but also telling a new story like you know within that um and so it's it's good that we're kind of at a point when people are like oh okay you know i've seen a lot of this stuff because invincible is designed to be something almost completely different that's offering uh you know a pretty different experience as far as superhero fatigue in general, I you know, there's probably 50 more superhero movies in the queue that are going to be coming out in the next like five or six years. I think there's going to be some good ones in the bunch. And I think it's just a flavor thing. You know, I think that these projects just need to offer something different. And uh, I think people will be just as excited about them as they were a couple of years ago. So, so I, I'm pretty bullish on superheroes as a genre. I've seen you talk in past interviews about how you felt it was important to bring diversity to the TV version of Invincible. And that was a reason why you made his mom Korean, which would make him half Korean, and his best friend slash girlfriend black. And I was wondering, do you have any sense about why you didn't do that in the original comic? And then what changed your thinking to make you think when you're going to do the TV show, let's make sure we reflect diversity here? You know, if you look at the comic being published in 2003, the Guardians of the Globe were somewhat diverse. There was there was some diversity, but as a white guy in Kentucky, like you don't really consider that kind of stuff, uh, or at least I didn't. You know, like maybe that was just my shortcoming. You know, I, I thought I was doing a diverse cast. I thought I was doing something that reflected society and the diverse world that we live in. But looking back on it, it's like, oh, okay, so, you know, we've got a one black guy that's a villain. There's not a lot of Asian characters. There's not any Hispanic characters. You know, there's nobody that's Muslim or anything like that. And, and, and you start to realize, like, okay, well, you know, this isn't necessarily reflecting modern society. And so, so that was just the goal. That was the thought when we were doing the animated series is, you know, let's, let's change things to more reflect the world around us in a way that we weren't cognizant of when we were younger doing the comics. Cool. Now you strike me as other than Kevin Smith, maybe you seem like the ultimate example of a fan who kind of, you know, achieved the ultimate dream. I mean, went from someone who loved comics to writing comics to writing TV shows and films that have been successful. And I'm wondering, how do you sort of balance feeding the fans, you know, making sure that you create something that fans love, but not letting yourself sort of become a prisoner to what they expect or their view of what your work is? How do you hold on to that inner fanboy, but not let it control what you do too much? 
I think the fact that I am such a devoted comic book fan has served me really well. And I, I think one of the ways that it's really helped me is I'm, I'm really, for the most part, doing all of my projects for an audience of one. When I first started writing my comics, I was trying to entertain myself and I was trying above all to do a comic that would have excited me. And that's kind of held true as I've moved through my career. Every issue of Walking Dead has been written to keep me excited and keep me engaged. Every issue of Invincible, same thing. Uh, you know, when I sat down to write the pilot of Invincible, my main goal was to write a pilot episode that I feel as a fan would excite me. And so I think that by continuing to try and entertain the same fan, which is myself, I, I, I'm not allowing any of the outside influences from you know various TV shows existing or things like that, like cluttering things up too much. And I've been fortunate in that, you know, so far at least, you know, the kind of things that I find exciting that keep me engaged in the projects that I'm doing seem to be things that people like. I will eventually, inevitably fall out of touch with society and start doing <laughs> things that make no sense that nobody likes. And I'm sure that day will come at some point and I'm terrified of it, but prepared for its inevitability. So, so, so we'll see. <laughs> but so far, at least I'm still into things that other people are into. So, whew. Robert Kirkman, thank you so much for joining us on the business. We really appreciate you taking time to talk with us. No, this has been a real thrill, man. It was great talking to you. And that's the business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream the business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on the business.